episode of Sight in the Tone, an ER retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. Today we'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 11, which is titled Dead of Winter. The episode aired on January 4th, 1996. Oh no, we're only 24 <laughs> years out from, now, from it now. So Lauren, what was going on that week 24 years ago? Well... After being banned for 36 years, Playboy is now allowed to be sold in Ireland. Exciting times, I guess. <laughs> um, Calvin and Hobbes ends its run of new content in newspapers across the world after 10 years, as artist Bill Watterson believed he had achieved everything he could with the comic. The comic still appears weekly in newspapers in over 50 countries. The very first ever clamshell flip-style mobile phone, the Motorola StarTac, goes on sale. The phone, which weighed only 3.1 ounces and retailed for $1,000, or 1654 in 2020 dollars, became the first cell phone to become a widespread hit, selling 60 million units. It was eventually replaced in 2004 by the Razor, which I had. I did, I did too. too. I- I liked my razor. It was, it was not one. my first phone, but it was my second phone. My first one was some little candy bar thing that lit up on the sides from Nokia. <laughs> yep, I had that, a Nokia too. But I'm pretty sure I smashed against a rock one time just for fun because I was a stupid teenager and it worked. Yeah, no, Nokia ones were forever, but the, those razors, you'd use them too much and they'd event, the hinge would eventually wear out and mess up your screen. That's what happened to mine. Yep. We Texting under the table in class, flipping it open aggressively all the time. You know, like kids do. Oh, the 90s. Oh, the aughts. Uh, That was the aughts, that's true. (laughs) Um, Toy Story closes out 1995 with its fifth week ruling the box office. And New Year, same song. One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men is still the number one song. One Sweet Day, that song will no longer be number one. Ha ha. All right, this week we've got 37.6 million viewers. Uh, This episode is directed by Whitney Rancic. Uh, This is her one and only episode of ER that she directed. She's got a a fair amount of credits to her resume. Um, She had also directed, prior to this, Homicide Life on the Street, a few episodes of that, and she would go on to direct 10 episodes of Smallville, a show I have never watched. And then this episode was written by John Wells, uh, showrunner, show omnipresent person. We should know who he is by now. So we open this episode, uh, we have a snowy ambulance bay, still our ambulance bay, I love it. Feels like home, and uh, generally just a quiet ER. It kind of feels like the episode, uh, a similar opening, except, you know, minus Jerry singing uh, Jingle Bells to uh, Blizzard. <laughs> so, yeah, very peaceful. I, got, I definitely got vi- very vi- very much uh, got vibes of that going on, um, but a, it's just, we're walking along with Jeannie. Uh, she says that we, she tells various folks that we have a baby coming in respiratory arrests five minutes out so Jeannie goes to get uh, susan from the suture room where she's napping and yeah susan are you awake yeah, yeah, yeah. susan really are you awake no turn out the lights it's <laughs> having flashbacks to trying to wake up nurse jen exactly very similar turn off the overheads i say that like i would know what that looks like but still <laughs> uh and i also wanted to note here too that because there's a very brief way towards the end of the episode. There's a very brief blink and you miss it appearance of him. Um, but otherwise, this right here uh, during this scene is our final appearance of Rolando, the desk clerk. Aww. So, Rolando, we hardly knew ye. Hashtag Team Jerry. So he gets bobbed. 
Yeah, he'll he'll be on the list. Stay tuned for the season recap in a few months. He'll he'll be on that list. Hey, this we're we are now going to be halfway through this season. That's right, this is the halfway this, mark. This episode. So, we're getting there. So then we switch over to Mark turning on his light in bed at 4:17 in the morning. So and close. Who, Almost 4:20. Sorry. Aha. Uh-huh. And who has their bedside light directly above their face? This is another point in the Mark as a future serial killer category <laughs> along with the plain bagels. Maybe, okay, so here's my headcanon. Maybe it's that he's used to sleeping in spare uh, exam rooms and spare trauma rooms and stuff, and he's used to having that big, like, surgical light thing kind of right over his head. Like, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. It just seems like it would just be in the way. And that thing is, like, maybe six inches from his face. Yeah, it's pretty aggressive. And I also want to note, I think these are the only pair of boxers that he owns (laughs) as we see him walk to the fridge. And it looks like we're seeing his new apartment as he's chugging oj straight from the carton and he's channel surfing and watching some random medical show which is just so meta yeah it looks very very much more bachelor pad Oof. than even doug's apartment sad bastard bachelor pad like it's not exactly. even not even like a hip like he's got a lot going on he's got a lot of ladies coming over no it's just bare bare bones very sad depression central population mark well Oof. he's only probably just moved in there like a month ago i feel like a month is enough time for you to maybe like get some stuff on your account like his when he opens the fridge there's like four things in there (laughs) like and most of like one of them is oj and the other one's like ketchup like he has like he doesn't have anything that's the thing he he has the bachelor fridge he does um then we cut over we have a shep and roll uh pull up with their rig they're um they're not at the er they were going out on a uh, domestic violence call and you know they kind of pull up into the building and there's uh this passed out guy um just fell down the stairs and it's clearly hurt but they're like what the fuck why'd you give us get us out of bed for for this guy and then the cop uh, brings him up to the real reason that they were called um and they go up to an apartment with uh 10 plus children at least that we could count i think the final final to count uh, 22 yeah final tally ends up being 22 uh children living without apparent adult supervision in a rundown apartment with an older girl with them that's like there's like an older looking boy and an older looking yeah but just for the most part completely ratty clothes no shoes malnourished they look malnourished and chef just looks insanely uncomfortable and you know rightly so like you kind of would be in a situation like that now should i put my note in here or should we let it flow through the audio flow through the story and we'll get to it well let's flow through the story let's see how it how it comes up. Okay. Well, I will just say this. Right about here, I had already guessed what the twist was going to be for this episode, if you can even call it a twist. <laughs> the hook. So we come in with some bangs after that, which feels like a very, very um, abrupt switch from these tragic children to Shep's uneasy face into the bangs. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Is there at a certain point where it, like, it reliably becomes like slow entrance twinkles or... and hard-hitting entrance bangs or we'll something. We'll find like. out. Yeah, we'll find out, because clearly my memory is not as good as I anticipated, because to me, like, it seemed like it was a very even split between Twinkles and Bangs, and we're obviously not there That's yet. That's what I thought, so, too. Um, I'm told from outside sources, looking at you, Bobby, um, that once we get around, like, season five or six, it gets to be a little bit more consistent. So maybe 
maybe we'll get there eventually. We'll get there in a couple of years, hopefully. Yeah, but so we come out of the intro with Susan and Mark uh, kind of talking about the the kids. As uh, Lauren mentioned, it's 22 is the final count, living in a single apartment ranging from six months all the way up to nine and a half years. They've got a variety of ailments um, to deal with here. Malnutrition, ringworm, diarrhea, amongst other things. ER got 15 of them, um, and the remaining seven were split between other hospitals. And we've got Doug, of course, you know, doing his superpedes thing where he's running around rushing to see as many of them as he can. It's a bad situation all the way around. Yeah, and then we, we switch over to Mark is talking to a young boy named Ty, probably like seven or eight. Yeah, I think he's one of like the older ones. He must, he must be like the nine-year-old yeah. among them. And Mark's like, you know, who are these kids? Can you tell us their names? And he says that some are his brothers and sisters, some are cousins, and he only knows some of their names. And Shep walks in, and somebody's like, "Why are why are they only half dressed? Or you know, why are they missing shoes?" And Shep says there were only enough clothes for about half of the kids in the apartment. Yeah, so I think Shep gave his boots, or Shep yeah. gave his coat, or something his yeah. to one of the ch- kids. Ty walks away, and they pan down, and you can see he's got the the hospital gown on, and he's got you know the big fireman boots on the on his feet like they're just swallowing his little his little legs so for probably the last time this episode we'll say good job Shep yeah yeah. there it is enjoy it now (laughs) you get to wait Daniel you get to actually hate Shep this episode I get to hate Shep every episode it's a free country okay I hate Shep every episode (laughs) I just have justified I just have more of a reason to hate him this time Hey, uh, but moving on to people we don't hate. Hi, Ruby. How are you doing? We have our audio. We have an audio clip of him. Well, not really of him, but just uh, more. We have that's Carter, Benson, Vuslich, and some other doctors in the room, and they're discussing uh, what they can do for Mrs. Rubidoux. So let's listen in. Rubidoux, would you excuse us for a moment, Mr. Rubidoux? Sure. Thank you. Doctor Benton. Post-op day nine, patient presented with a type A aortic dissection, which was repaired using the clamp-and-run procedure. Patient's surgical course was unremarkable, though there is evidence of partial paraplegia of the lower extremities. And this morning? Well, echo shows ejection fraction of 15%, BUNs 45, creatinine 2, BPs 180 over 110. Suggesting what? Congestive heart failure, renal insufficiency. None of this attributable to our recent life-saving aortic aneurysm surgery. Well, I am worried about her paraplegia. Well, it's too soon to determine whether it's not temporary. Course of action. Increase her cardiac output so we can transfer her to a long-term care facility. Get her off of our service, exactly. How? Well, given her condition, I'd suggest a butamine IV. Well, they wouldn't accept her in a nursing home with an IV, would they? Anybody else? Um, Mr. Carter, a thought. Uh, if we put her on debutamine, she might get better for a few days, but she's likely to decompensate and bounce right back here. Why not try a nasal inhibitor? Well, yes, we could do that, couldn't we, Dr. Benton? Worsens her renal problem. Carter? Nitrates. Mm, decreases her preload. Dejoxin. Kidneys can't clear it. Diuretics. Decreases her cardiac output. Quite the conundrum. Well, I'm sure there's a solution. Pinch of this, a touch of that. We have to use our clinical judgment. How many are you currently carrying, Mr. Carter? Fine, but I can handle another one, no problem. Well, in that case, why don't you show us what you can do without resorting to Dr. Benton's debutamine? Amaze us. Impress us. Work miracles. Be awesome, Carter. (laughs) Do the thing. Also, I just have to say, Rubidoux is such a fun name. It is a fun name to say. 
Except I hate it because every time I say Ruby, all I can fucking think of is Chris Tucker in The Fifth Element. And <laughs> I. <laughs> what a weird reference point for that. His name is Ruby as, as well. So. I know, and but. That, just... movie was, that movie was a critical part of my childhood. Thank you very much. So. Fair. Obviously, I can differentiate the two, but still. Yeah, I was gonna say if you're getting if you're getting red buttons mixed up with Chris Tucker, you got bigger problems. <laughs> Particularly Chris Tucker in the Fifth Element, with his giant penis hair. All right, so then going from there, uh, we go back to Green examining Ty. He's got a bad case of ringworm. I mean, a real bad case. Uh, he is trying to talk to him, get some information out of him because he's one of the few kids who's like really vocal. So he's kind of pumping him for as much information on the situation as he can get you know asks if they've if they get to eat on a regular basis and ty's like yeah we eat stuff says his mom gives him the food stamps when she doesn't need them and he does the shopping uh and then he he lets mark know that uh one of the brothers has cerebral palsy his little brother trey which they've they've got him off in one of the other rooms he's not one of the ones that got split off to one of the other hospitals so we'll see trey a little bit later on um, and then we quick cut over to Jeannie getting asked by Carol to help uh, de-lice some of the children. Uh, and Jeannie's immediately like, isn't this a nurse job? Not today, it's not. You're going to learn today. Um, and then speaking of Trey, uh, we actually do cut over with to him. We find out he's only, he's five years old and he's only 28 pounds. I recorded that right, right? I yeah, think so. That's about, I think that's about what they like... said. Yeah. And it was in the 20s. So, and I yeah. look... And I looked up out of curiosity, you know, what a normal, healthy five-year-old would look like, or what on average would be. And average is about 40 pounds, so Trey's about 12 pounds, give or take, underweight, which mm. when you're dealing with numbers that low, yikes. That's 25%. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, Tad sort of insult to injury here. Uh, his back is covered in cigarette burns, and uh, also has a bunch of welts back there as well, and Basically, he's starving to death. Real heartwarming episode, this one. Yeah, it's only going to get better, guys. <laughs> oy, oy. And then we go to the admit desk, and Randy is there in conservative clothes today. We can't see her navel. So it must it must be because it's cold outside. She decided she'd dress up a little. <laughs> I mean, anything Randy wears is amazing, and I'm here for it. I, I stand Randy all day, every day. But yeah, it was just weird. I'm like, wait, she's in a sweater. But... Benton runs down because he had been paged, and he's like, who paged me? And she's like, I don't know. Check the charts. Check the board. And he's like, I don't have time for this. I'm going back upstairs. Like, doesn't even try to ask around to find out who did it. He just bails. Um, and as he's getting ready to go, um, Al Boulay is at the counter. And he's like, oh, yeah, I met you when my, you know, when Jeannie's car broke down. And he's like, oh, you know, I was supposed to meet Jeannie for breakfast at 7 when she got off. But Jeannie's swamped, so she won't be off work anytime soon. So he's just going to have to wait. And then, as that's going on, Mark is asking if anyone has seen um, DCFS for the kids, which is Department of Child and Family Services. So they have not been by quite yet. And, you know, I'm sure Mark's already in a great mood with all of these kids coming in and, you know, seeing, you know, just sort of like the worst of people, you know, wondering how people can let stuff get this bad. So he's having a beautiful day, I'm sure. And, you know, to make matters worse, uh, he gets served. He gets a court summons for uh, Jen is, I think, suing suing him for custody? For divorce. Yeah, just divorce at this point. I don't How think do you sue either. someone for divorce? Oh, that's the common terminology is oh. you get served papers. 
So if you're not in, like, an amicable situation where you just, like, go and get the papers drawn up together with the same lawyer. Gotcha. It's you, they are technically have to be served by the other partner's lawyer. Did not know that. And so, like, Mark knew it was coming, but I think he thought maybe he had more time or that they were going to work on it together. And that's why it's such a surprise that she serves him papers at work instead. Because even though she's the one who did the shitty thing, he's the one who gets served papers. Yeah, because we are in early January here. So it's maybe what, like maybe a month ever since they decided to split? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, after and he, Christmas. He found out about Craig. Christmas, they were, you know, kind of, they were still talking at least. I mean, they weren't necessarily on friendly terms, but I mean, Mark did make kind of the concession of letting Rachel stay there over Christmas. So you would think that they maybe would be in at least a, a place to, where they could communicate, but I guess not. So then from there, we get uh, the jaded public servant showing up. Uh, the DCFS Hooray. guy has showed up, Pete Tudor, uh, who's a total one-off character. We do not ever see him again. Um, he's played by an actor named Mark Harris, who's got had a few little bit parts and things in the 90s. Um, seems like he kind of his career kind of petered out in the aughts. But he will be with us for this episode as the uh, kind of the, hey, isn't the system broken character? He'll be just adding his little commentary about that as we go along. Um, but we go from there to Malik and Jeannie. On, they're working on shampooing the kids together, getting them de-liced. Um, one absolutely adorable little girl. I mean, just cannot be more precious. Um, she's like completely mute, does not talk, and then suddenly asks Jeannie, will you be my mommy? And it's mm. just like, it's okay. I didn't need a heart. It's fine. I'm good. Eternal sadness. Oh, this episode just... Mm. Yeah, this episode is a real fucking downer. Like, yeah, we've had episodes where they have, you know, like Love's Labor Lost that we love to reference where the the end is just awful. But this one, it's just... It does not pull any punches throughout the entire thing. It's just you'll have a moment of reprieve and then bam. Yeah. Pulls you and right back down. it's just these poor kids. Yeah. And even more heartwarming? Not really. Uh... <laughs> Situations. Carter is uh, checking in on see to see how Mrs. Um, Mrs. Rubidoux is doing, uh, but also pops in to check on her. She still has her partial paraplegia, uh, partial paralysis going on. Benton's pager is just going off incessantly because obviously he went down and didn't, you know, actually wasn't actually down there for what he needed to be down there for with his page. So, and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, I'm not deaf, but <laughs> like. <sighs> That should just be, like, the the subtitle of this episode. <sighs> Sorry, Sigh. I'm just getting ready for the next part. Sigh the episode. Okay. So Mark is talking to the gentleman from DCFS, Pete Tudor, and we find out that most of the kids shouldn't even be living in that apartment, and they're, like, they don't have, the, the adults renting the apartment don't have custody for most of them. But they're all reportable for AFDC funds. And for those of you who don't know, AFDC is Aid to Families with Dependent Children. So if you're, you know, taking care of extra kids, like with foster families or whatever, you can get supplemental income to help cover the cost of raising the children. So we find out that all 22 of these children are helping, you know, bring in AFDC funds. The uncle is on disability, and the rent is maybe $300. So the adults are, in the words of Pete Tudor, netting $4,000 for crack, your tax dollars at work. Yikes. 
So this was what I already guessed at the very beginning of the episode, that this was going to be the shtick that they were going to pull, because this was late 90s, the crack baby, inner city, crack abuser narratives were still very much a boogeyman in white America's... The welfare queen storyline. We're still very much the boogeyman in white America's, you know, day-to-day media, and this is just another illustration of that. So it's just another way that people get it in their heads that, oh, people in underserved communities are abusing the system, and this is what happens. This is one of the few, I guess, hot-button is the best way to describe it, like Mm hot-button issue type of storylines thus far that they really don't do much to combat it like they really right. they really don't do much in this episode to push back on that narrative like they kind of just right. present it as is and don't really do anything about it like we're all just kind of supposed to like shrug our shoulders and be like mm, isn't that sad and like the system sucks but like they don't really do anything to counter that narrative and say like well okay just because this happened or you know it, it doesn't happen to the degree that you know, society would have you believe, but let's say that it does happen in this particular situation. That in and of itself, that one isolated incident is not evidence that the system itself does not work. And right. it's it's kind of disappointing, honestly, to see that this is the one time that we've seen, I think, this far, unless I'm missing something, this is the one time I think we've seen where there's been a, a popularly held narrative at the time, even of that time, where they've done they've made no effort whatsoever within the episode to try to counter it. And that kind of sucks. Right. Because like, as this guy says this completely matter of factly, like, Oh, you know, Mark's so naive that he doesn't, you know, get it. Mark's just like, Oh, okay. Like Mark doesn't even push back and go, wow. Is that really that common? Like he doesn't even give, like, there's not even room for the discussion. It's just like, Oh, of course this is what happens. Yeah. Like this happens all the time. I'm so not surprised that this is happening. And it's just like, This is one of those things that feeds into the American misunderstanding of the welfare state, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, no, one show isn't going to fix or ruin everything, but it's, you know, narratives like this that we see again and again in popular media that build up. Yeah. So I just, ugh, I, I hate that I called this, you know, five minutes into the episode. I was like, really? Could it have been any, any more predictable for 1996? But off my rant, going back into the narrative, the DCFS rep notes that they'll take them once they're treated and cleaned up. So Mark's going to make sure that these babies are all nice and, you know, medicated and well cared for before he puts them back out into foster care or back with these potentially abusive parents or caregivers, rather. Oh, none of them are going back. No, but I'm just I'm saying like before they go anywhere. Yeah. No, I know they're not going back. I'm not that dumb. And then after that, Susan asks Mark to come over and eat pizza and watch a movie while they hang out and wallow after work, which is nice. It's like we're starting to get back to that friendship with the two of them. Like now that the battle with Carrie is over, it's calming down. Uh, Here we go. Jesus Christ, I don't want to play this next <laughs> one, this next clip. So... Well, if you were hoping for some escapism in our little podcast here from uh, current events, well, this isn't the episode for you. <laughs> this ain't it, Chief. Yeah. Uh, Shep and Raul are here, and uh, Shep, being, you know, Shep in his infinite wisdom, decides to have a little conversation with some of the folks at the admit desk. Hey, any fine homes for those kids yet? 
Not yet. The DCFS took some of the older ones to the emergency shelter, and we admitted three. You want anything from the machine? Yeah, how about some of those uh, peanut butter crackers? Got it. <laughs> That's cute. Raul? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're not as tight. Really? You ever dress up like a lumberjack? Longshoreman? Greco-Roman wrestler? He's gay. Really? Randy, who's paging me? Not a clue. Well, isn't that your job? No, it's not. Check the board and the charts. You should have seen this place. 20 kids, no refrigerator, no heat, roaches everywhere. Only thing in the kitchen was a can of SpaghettiOs. You really got to wonder about these mothers. But then you got to think, what about the families? You know, the neighbors. I mean, can't these people take care of their own kids? What the hell is that supposed to mean? What does what mean? These people. Come on. Your partner, catch. Why can't these black folks take care of their kids, right? He didn't say that. Yeah, well, that's what he meant. Hey, if that's what I meant, that's what I would have said. Hey, what's going on, guys? David Duke here is enlightening us. Oh, Malik, that's not fair. You think those kids deserve to be living like that, huh? Whatever happened to personal responsibility? You think it's equal? He's the surgeon, I'm the fireman. Yeah, well, you would find it that simple, huh? I mean, because we all know the system works the same for everybody. The system seems to be working pretty well for you, Doc. Let me tell you something. You don't know a damn thing about what works for me. Peter, where have you been? I've been paging you. Trauma, too. What the hell was that all about? You, man, that's what? Have I mentioned lately how much I love Malik? <laughs> like, I wish, I wish I could say this is the worst thing he says in the whole episode, but it's not. It's just... It's it's disheartening how familiar some of the terminology and the phrasing that he uses is still to us in 2020, 24 years after this episode aired. Like that type of that like the Shep, the Sheps of the world are still very much out there. Like they still very much have this attitude and they think they're right. And that's the part that sucks the most, is that they think that what they're saying is not controversial or upsetting or offensive to anyone. And that is the, I think, root of the, the problem, is that they're, they're just living in this fantasy world where their words don't have an effect on anyone else. And it's just, uh, he sucks so much in this episode. Now, if you or someone you know may be at risk of being a chef of the world, <laughs> I might recommend a book called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration and the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander, because it talks a lot about the systemic racism that that's built into our society, especially within the prison and criminal justice systems, but it deals a lot with this whole, you know, just because someone's the surgeon and someone's the fireman doesn't necessarily mean equality. Racism is over, kids. Benton's a surgeon. It's it's we're good. <laughs> we're good here. If you have it, thanks everybody. Thanks for all your effort. It's awesome. Oh wait, wait. I'm sorry. What? If you have a sh oh yeah, Black Lives Matter, motherfuckers. If you have Shep's attitude for longer than four hours, please consult your doctor. Basically, what we're saying is, wake the fuck up, guys. Like, yeah, and it's and more than importantly that. than wake the fuck up, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up, and listen. <laughs> Did he not learn his fucking lesson? Like, however many episodes ago it was when he ran his mouth off at the nurse's station and pissed off Carol because he was talking flippantly about suicide and whether or not suicide attempts are valid. So clearly this fucking lughead has learned nothing. And, no. like, it, it, it's just same shit, different day. Like, I'm, I'm, eh. he has no redeeming value to me as a character. None. Daniel, 
He's a white man between 18 and 49. Of course he thinks his opinion Particularly matters. Particularly in the mid-90s. <sighs> so, yeah. Not great. Not a great look for Shep. And like I said, I wish I could say that that was his, his lowest point in the show, but it's not. We will. He somehow manages to dig that hole a little bit deeper just late, just a bit later on, but we will get back to that. Uh, for now, Loretta is back, uh, continuing her pretty long-running storyline at this point. Like, she's been with us since, I think, didn't she start in the premiere of season two? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is like her third or fourth appearance at this point. And uh, she comes in uh, with her kids this time. Uh, her kid has a sore throat and a fever. Uh, one of her kids is uh, going to destroy the universe, uh, little Anakin Skywalker. Uh, J- uh, excuse me, it's only one galaxy. Thank you very much. Uh, fine, whatever. Uh, it's a long time ago and far, far away. Uh, exactly. Anakin Skywalker, played by young Jake Lloyd here, who would, just a few years after this, have his life unceremoniously ruined by the worst fans on the planet. Don't be fans of kid. anything. It's a terrible idea, and it turns you into a terrible person. I recommend listening to the fandom episode of the popular court for this topic. We did. We kind of touched on Jake Lloyd's uh, thing here because this poor kid who never asked for this, you know, never, never wanted, you know, any 30 to 40 some year old Star Wars fans breathing down his neck and talking about how he ruined uh, a franchise, which he didn't, you know. This kid, I don't, when I say his life was ruined, I don't mean that, like, he got teased at school, which he did. Uh, but what I mean is that, like, he has his life has spiraled completely out of control. Like he was uh, pretty much going through a psychotic breakdown a few years ago. Like I remember his mom was coming out and kind of pleading for anyone who had any sort of information about his whereabouts uh, because she thought he was not well and could be a danger to himself. So, and, and a lot of the, I mean, I'm sure a lot of this was, you know, stuff that he kind of already had going on beneath the surface, but it certainly was exacerbated by his treatment after appearing in star Wars. So, not a great start for little Jake Lloyd here. But he got to meet Turbo Man. He did. Thank he was you. also in Jingle All the Way, yes, with <laughs> uh, with Sinbad and, and Arnie. Um, that was probably the happiest moment of his life, I'm sure. So he today he's dealing with uh, a little strep throat, um, which Mark says they can clear right up. Uh, Loretta still has her office job that Lydia helped her prep for, which is great. Uh, they managed to get into a new house. Um, she kind of mentions off-the-cuff or offhand remark that her IUD has still been bleeding. Uh, so she's ha- having some irregular bleeding, which Mark, you can kind of see Mark immediately perk up to, where he's like, mm, that doesn't sound right. So he kind of ushers the kids out of the room with Lydia so that he can talk to Loretta on her own. Um, so we will we will circle back to this one a little bit later. And no, it's just no one's having a good day here because we have our next audio for you here. And Benton's still just being a raging tool about people paging him and not being available. What do we have? Seven-year-old male, small reducible right-sided inguinal mass. It's all right, Michael. This is Peter. He's a doctor. He's going to help you feel better, okay? You paged me this morning, too? Yeah, where were you? On surgical rounds, which you pulled me off of for nothing. Oh, excuse me. I thought you were assigned to the ER. No, 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 no. I'm assigned to the surgical service. I cover the ER. And when I'm paged, I expect somebody to be waiting for me when I come down. Well, we've been a little busy down here today. <laughs> almost over, Michael. Almost. It doesn't have a hernia. Check him again? You're wasting my time. Peter. It's not there. The hell it isn't. Check him again. <laughs> 
Still reducible. I'll put him on a surgical schedule. Operate tomorrow. Draw pre-op labs. Peter, what is the matter with you? If you're angry with me, you take it out on me, not on some little boy. What? Give us a minute, Connie. That little boy in there is scared to death, and you're poking around on him like you're stuffing a turkey, telling him how he needs surgery. He's never even seen a doctor. Is that it? No, that's not it. Look, Peter, this is about you and me. Get over it. If it's about something else, get over that too. I'm sick of it. Don't you turn your back on me. That little boy in there needs compassion. If you can't find that in yourself, get out of medicine. Get him, Jeannie. Again, Jeannie is the best when she actually gets to just go off on people and just do her thing. Have a voice. Have a voice, yes. When she's not just a foil to Benton, but an actual, like, adult with motives. Yes. And I want you to note that my films are still in the empty trauma room that they're in. They've just been in there the whole time. They never take them down. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to start, like... Taking, I'm going to start taking pictures and putting them on the Instagram every episode that we see them so we can start comparing <laughs> if they are, in fact, the same films in the trauma room. And, really and when they disappear. Because I feel yes. like they're going to disappear at some point. The, the show will have heard me 24 years <laughs> in the future and make the change. Edit them out of Hulu. But yep, my films are still in the trauma room. Daniel has his tinkles, I have my films. <laughs> makes it sound like i have a condition sorry you have your twinkles not tinkles <laughs> thank you um and i have my sadness oh well we all have that podcast jokes not not real life especially during this episode we all have sadness so we go from there to a quick patient uh 69 year old male nice uh history of um God heart Daniel. history <laughs> history of cardiac issues uh, he experienced sudden chest pain, found unconscious. He's brought in uh, by his son, uh, who we find out his name is Howard Mills. And this was one of my finer, more pedantic, oh, hey, it's that guy's, because he really only has one thing that I recognized him from, but it's so recognizable that I, I immediately recognized him. <laughs> uh, he's played by an actor named Nicholas Cascone or Casconi. Um, and his main claim to fame is that he is the guy with an obnoxious amount of sunscreen on his nose on Bill Paxton's boat at the beginning of Titanic. When they're uh, looking for the, the diamond necklace at the very beginning of Titanic, he's the like guy over Bill Paxton's shoulder looking at the monitors. And he has, like I would say, a, a bottle's worth of sunscreen on his, uh, on his nose. So that's his, that's his claim to fame. Uh, and he gets kicked out of the... Uh, kicked out of the room to go get coffee so that they can run tests on his dad so we i think circle back to this briefly but maybe yep. not even this might be a one-off no we we come back to him very briefly a little bit yeah later on. uh but for now we have our another audio clip for you uh we have uh Janie discussing her first student evaluation in the er with her uh with her instructor advisor, advisor yeah <laughs> congressman congresswoman maxine waters sure why not bobby Sorry I'm late. No problem. How about a cup of coffee? It's only about a week old. No, thanks. I'm already on my 10th cup or so. I was on all night. How's it been going? Okay. I'm a little concerned about your first student evaluation. Pleasant, helpful, lacks assertiveness, needs to take control if she's going to be useful. Good skills, but may not be well suited for work in the emergency department. 
Is that from a Peter Benton? Who? Dr. Peter Benton, surgical resident. No, residents don't evaluate physician assistant students. No, this is from Carol Hathaway, RN, MS. I didn't realize the nurses evaluated us. Look, I realize that putting PAs into settings where nurses had a monopoly can cause problems. But liked or disliked, we have to do a better job. So I need to know, can you cut it? Because if you can't, I can't afford to have you fail down there. I can cut it. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, aren't those evaluations supposed to be anonymous, typically? Not necessarily. I would think in this type of environment they probably should be, though, especially since they have to... Con like, if it was a post-rotation evaluation where she's leaving to go somewhere else, then yeah. I think that would be fine for her to say, oh, this was done by so-and-so. But for her to this be only like a first progress report, she's now got to go back down and, and work with the alongside these people like that's um, that's like, kind of rough immediately. Right. That she's able to go and immediately confront her about it like that scene. I w if I was Carol, I would be mad about that. Yeah, I would think that that stuff is being said in confidence at that point. Yeah. Carol doesn't exactly seem happy when they when they have a little uh, confrontation later on the episode. And discussion. <laughs> well, Jeannie does seem a little defensive, but we'll get there when we get there. This whole well, episode is just a listening party. Yeah. What happens next, Lauren? So, Doug pops out of a hallway randomly. Mark, Jennifer filed for divorce? Just like, they're not even talking. He just shows up as Mark's walking down the hall, and Mark just goes, word travels fast. <laughs> and Doug goes, I just figured you would have, you would find a way to hold it together. I mean... If not for Rachel and for anything, and it's like, have you seen Mark and Jen together? Yeah, they're not exactly a... Uh, Dream a, couple. Exactly, yeah. They're not exactly the power couple of the ER. Right, he's like, he's like, if you can't make it work, what hope is there for guys like me? <laughs> like, my best friend's life is falling apart, but I'm gonna make it a joke. Um, <laughs> so Clooney's all better, and their whole conflict is fixed. And then Susan is still at work. Her shift ended forever ago, and Mark's like, you need to go home. She's like, I need to see these kids through. Like, I'm going to keep hanging out. I'll be gone in a bit. And then the grandmother of all of these children has come in to find them. And she's like, yeah, you know, they told me that some of them were here. I want to check on them. And the whole admit desk just gives her such shade. Now, does she, in this, I'm trying to refresh my memory here. In this scene, do they specify that she's the grandmother? Yeah, she says. She does, okay. Like, yeah. that's, I was hoping to get them off the hook there and be like, well, maybe they thought she was the mother and that's why they're no. giving her shade. But. And I, I have a question when we get when we get back to the grandma a little bit later on. So, Daniel, when you have that discussion point a little bit further on, there's something I want to mention. Okay. All right, but for now, our listening party continues. Uh, Carter is still trying to do his best to work up and try to figure out what the fuck to do with uh, Mrs. Rubidoux and... Ruby shows up, so let's listen to their little chat. What are her eyes and O's? 150 cc's in, 800 cc's out. Pressure? Down. 80 over 40. Down? Why don't you call me? You didn't put it in your orders. Give her 300 cc bolus and monitor her pressure, please. How's that girl doing, Doc? Oh, not much improvement yet, Mr. Ruby. Do. Oh, Ruby, please. Call me Ruby. Coffee? Come on, I bought an extra. Oh, oh, no thanks. Oh, come on. A cup of hot joe. You, 
You look like you could stand a little pick-me-up. Mmm. <laughs> now, that's good coffee. <laughs> ah. Should have seen her 50 years ago. Backstage at the Majestic. Great games. Hell of a looker. Pal Joey, way to the forum. How to succeed. Broadway, off-Broadway. You name it. Hmm. I did a couple musicals myself. Back in school, Pippin. Fantastics, too. Oh, yeah, good shows. Mm. Yeah, I bet you were wonderful. Mm-hmm. Not really. Oh, I don't believe it. I bet you were great. Mr. Carter, uh, mostly I embarrassed myself. Doctor. I'm not ready to let her go yet. Can this episode stop just, like, hitting me right in the feels, please? <laughs> like, we... like, seriously, we're only fucking halfway through this episode, like, in terms of, like, uh, where the, um, like, timestamp is. Like, it's, I'm, God, why? Why? Why do we have to do this now? Why? 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 Like, <laughs> like, we usually have at least one warm and fuzzy storyline to kind of tide us over. And, and even even during those heavier episodes, we usually have one little something we can grab onto that'd be like, well, at least that happened. But, like, but no, now, this episode is just bummer after bummer. Unrelenting sadness. My biggest issue with this whole scene, though, is uh, Rubidoux's assertion that mm, that's good coffee because no hospital cafeteria on the planet has good coffee. <laughs> Can't confirm. But, yeah, Ruby, just break my heart. It's fine. Yeah. Um, and, like I said, listening party episode. Uh, we're moving right along. Uh, we're circling back over to Jeannie approaching Carol about her student evaluation. Carol. Can I talk to you? Sure. What's up? I just uh, had my student evaluation with my program coordinator. You've been unhappy with my work. I think you're competent, but timid. If you want to be down here, you need to be more aggressive. I've been trying. Look, the ER isn't for everybody. You know, don't feel bad if you're not comfortable down here. Have I done something to offend you in some way? This isn't personal. It's just... You're always waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. It's like this conversation. I tell you I need you to be more aggressive, and you want to stand here and discuss it. I don't have time to hold people's hands. You just got to do it. So it's not a PA thing? No, it's not. But hey, I've got nurses who have been here for 20 years. Physician assistants go to school for a couple of months, and they have the right to tell us what to do? Two years. Two years of training, two years of internship. I went nights while I worked full time, so my training took me four years. If you want to stay in the ER, stop looking for validation and start doing the job. You do that and we'll get along fine. So I see we're we're repurposing the uh, Susan needs to be more assertive from season one storyline. We've, we've just sort of traced over onto that, onto Jeannie here. And also, like, I don't get where Carol's coming from. Every time we've seen Jeannie, she has been perfectly, like, on the ball with what people have needed. Yeah, yeah kind of, it's kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I suppose there could be some unseen, you know, because in, in a lot of that stuff, it's, it is Benton and Jeannie. So, I mean, I suppose there could be some unseen interactions we're not privy to where Car- what Carol's basing her assessment off of there. Um, but, yeah, it does sort of feel like they've created a conflict just for the sake of it without much, like, 
justification for it. But, um, you know, I, like I said, it, to me, it just sort of felt, felt like kind of a recycled thing. Like we're, we're just doing the same spiel that we did with Susan in season one with, again, with Benton, where it was like, you know, Oh, you, you don't stand up for yourself. And, you know, so it, instead of Susan and green, it's now Jeannie and Carol. I was just going to say, and it seems kind of uncharacteristic for Carol because from what we've seen of her management style, like she would totally give advice and feedback instead of the bullshit she pulls in this conversation where she's like, like this conversation, I tell you to be more aggressive and you want to discuss it. Like, yeah, of course she wants to discuss it. She wants to get a better idea of what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a little bit out of character for Carol. And, and, but I do, the one redeeming quality I think is of it is that they do sort of circle back at the end and without coming out and saying it and spelling it out, they do sort of admit that Carol has some internal bias in the situation where, you know, she is, even though she claims that she's not, she is sort of threatened by the position of a PA and it does sort of encroach on her territory. And so like, I'm sure that plays into her evaluation to some degree. So I think that is part of it as well. And having Jeannie stand up for herself at the end and say, no, it didn't take me a couple of months training. It took me four years of training. Thank you very much. Like, it's good that she's able to kind of get her able to return the volley a little bit and kind of say like, oh, no, no, this is exactly what it is. Like, I put in the work. I have just as much qualification to be here as you do or anybody else does. So I think they do sort of like save it towards the end. But it is just sort of a weird situation. For sure. And continued shitty stuff, Daniel. What's next? (laughs) The hits keep on coming. So we go from here um, back upstairs. They're coming out of the the surgical suite. uh, And Vucelich is walking and talking with Benton about Mrs. Rubidoux. And Benton kind of voices concern that her paraplegia is not improving. And he thinks that that's his fault. And Vucelich's response to this is like, very flippant and and very he's more concerned about the study and he says you know like well we'll have to exclude her from the study you know she was never an appropriate candidate to begin with which is several things wrong with that number one uh that's not how you do science you don't just get to exclude results you don't like from a from a a research study that's kind of defeats the whole purpose uh number two it's a complete 180 from what he said in the last episode where he was like, no, she's a perfect candidate for this. Like, let's do it. Let's break the record. Remember when they were so concerned about breaking their speed record? Uh, You know, so he's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth here. And as Benton tries to sort of wrestle with that and raise objection to it, Vuselich immediately kind of pivots and has his assistant make Benton a formal member of his research team, a research assistant. So Benton's going to get all the the fancy perks, the parking spot. He gets a little office, you know, so he kind of like greases the wheels a little bit with Benton here. And it, it, it's really, I think it's probably one of the best moments I think in the episode in terms of storytelling, because it, it sets up where we eventually go with Vuselich. Um, Mm -hmm. And it does it in a, it, it does it in a way that doesn't completely spell out the whole thing for you in plain English, but it definitely leads your mind starting down the road to where we're going to go. So I think it's, it's one of the better moments of storytelling in the whole episode. Well said. And we go back to check on Howard Mills and his dad, and we find out that the dad did in fact have another heart attack. They're going to admit him up to cardiology for further treatment and tests, but prognosis does not look good. And, you know, 
as as they're saying this, Howard just goes, you know, I think he wants to go. My mother died last year of breast cancer. You know, they were married 50 years. So this guy is literally dying of a broken heart. I hate this shit. This is this, a rough episode, this guys. This episode. Like, this that's... This is... Ugh. It's a toughie. Like, seriously. Don't tell me that. But I understand they also wouldn't want to add a whole bunch of, like, comedic punches in between this really heavy episode with the children. Yeah. But God. But, I mean, they've done they've done worse pivots. Like, they've done worse. But, I mean, remember that Thanksgiving episode? <laughs> like, where they, I tried they, to forget. They're stuffing a turkey and shit. Like, it, it was... They, they've done worse. I feel like they could have done with a, a touch of levity in this episode. You know, give me give me a scene with Jerry. Just give me something. Give me something to hold on to here because this is just such a downer. <sighs> well, Benton at least looks like he's a little happier now. Uh, he gets so taken over to his his new office. Benton has a fancy ass office. Well, not fancy ass, but fancy. Benton has an office more than he would get just being a surgical resident. That's for goddamn sure. <laughs> um, and it also comes with a stipend, which he a bribe. Lo- yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and an assigned parking spot, but mostly a bribe. Yeah, mostly like a shh. It's fine. It's fine. The research this study's is, perfect. It's fine. This is fine. Everything is fine. This is fine. Ignore ignore the killer clown in the background. It's fine. <laughs> too many cooks so then from there we go over to uh susan uh showing up to check on the kids and the grandmother uh grandmother's name is miss pruel uh she says that she let them go back with their mom last month because she thought that the mom was doing better with her drug addiction um and at her house miss miss pruel's house grandmother's house grandma's house they all had rooms and beds and were well cared for so she's she's feeling a little bit little bit guilty here that she's kind of allowed this situation to spiral out of control um the kids are going to dip temporary custody to dcfs uh until a court hearing next week uh that will decide their ultimate fate whether they'll get to go back with grandma i'm, I'm assuming going back with mom is not even an option on the table but whether they'll get to go with grandma again or if they'll be uh kind of scattered to the winds of the foster system i just want to like yell at chef and be like see see she's good right <laughs> Yeah, it's not a these people situation, it's a shitty person situation. But, um, no, the other thing I wanted to note here was that she says that they'd only been, like, with their mom for a month. Would that be enough time for these kids' health to deteriorate in the way that it had? I mean, if you don't eat after yeah. a few days, you're going to start to notice the effects, That's much true. less of... It sounds like they barely begin any food from the get-go. Yeah, it, it's and it's hard to say. I mean, if and if they're in the the condition that apartment was in, like if they'd been in that apartment for a month, I mean, who knows what kind of uh, you know, bugs or rodent kind of exposure they might have had, like they might have been exposed or mold even. I mean, a, a an older building like that, like eas- easily could have been exposed to like black mold and stuff like that. So True. Good point. Could get bad real fast. And then just Again, tug at my heartstrings a little bit more, why don't you? Like it's un- my heart is unraveling like a sweater here because we're pulling on the strings so much. Uh, Halle gives her just this very knowing and sympathetic look as they carry the kids out. Like just like using Halle as the silent emotional beat there is just it's it's effective. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's just just twist the knife a little bit more, why don't you? Because am I right that that was a look of sympathy, not pity? Yeah, no, it was. It was a look of like, oh, like, I I get it. Like, I feel your pain, like, grandma. I feel grandma's pain. 
Right. Like, I would do anything for my babies, and look what she's going through with these. Yeah. Okay, here's your levity for the episode, guys. Oh, boy. Sure, I guess. Kind of. Yeah. They treat it as a joke when it happens. They, they treat it as a joke. Sure That's really And It's like, does this episode really need to get shittier? Do we need to make fun we of fat people? Fat shame people? Yeah. Yeah. Like, but I'm God. just saying, the writers thought this was your moment of levity. They did. You're right. So a, 50, a 51-year-old woman weighing over 300 pounds comes in complaining of abdominal pain. She thinks she ate too much on New Year's Day, and Jeannie has to get a stool sample, but then they're like, oh, and Chuni will help you. Because Chuni starts to have, for no pun intended, a shitty and grin when she finds out um, that Jeannie has to do it. And then Mark's like, no, Chuni will help. Uh, so we'll come back to that. <laughs> and then right back on the unrelenting sadness train, uh, Carter hops, pops in to interrupt uh, Dr. Vuselich and give him an update on Mrs. Rubidoux. So let's listen to that. 7352901. Date of admission 122695. Dictating. Dr. Vuselich, can I interrupt you for a minute? <laughs> you already have. Uh, Mrs. Rubidoux isn't improving. Uh, I've tried Lasix, nitrates, pressors. She just keeps seesawing back and forth. Either she's volume depleted and her pressure's dropping or her pressure's up and her pulse ox is dropping. Put her on dibutamine? Uh, you told me not to. So, do you always follow instructions even when you've surmised that they're incorrect? Mrs. Rubidoux is a sinking ship, and you've spent all day rearranging her deck chairs. Now, you're probably right. Once we buffed her up and bundled her off, she will decompensate and end up right here in the hospital. But she will not be on our service, and she won't be your problem. Um, let's see. Uh, dictating discharge summary on patient David Piscuscus from date of admission. Did I make her worse today? She's dying, Mr. Carter. And nothing you did is going to change that. Date of admission 122695. Date of discharge 1896. Patient presented with claudication of the right lower extremity of a. He's a slippery little prick, isn't he? He sure is. A little bit. But just, yeah. To be fair, Mrs. Rubidoux is kind of a, a freight train going off the rails with all of her different medical problems right now. Yeah. But just that, something about that, you know, well, did you try doing the thing I explicitly told you not to do? No, you told, yeah. you told me not to. Do you always not listen to, like, look, drop the Mr. Miyagi shit, okay? Like, what do you want me yeah. to do? I'm I'm a medical intern. I'm making you are trusting me to make medical decisions, and you told me not to make that medical decision, so I'm not going to make that medical decision. It's so bad, and it's about to get worse. Like we come to the highlight of the episode or the low light. I don't know. However you want to, however you want to view this one. Um, So if you follow our Instagram, you saw me post this. several weeks ago now uh right around the time of when we're recording this uh little inside baseball there shep's little scene here he's in the cafeteria with carol and raul uh they're getting some coffee on carol's break uh and malik is a couple tables over with a an uns- unmentioned or unnamed character we've never really seen this guy before we never see him again but he's he's sitting a couple tables away eating some ice cream and shep decides that he needs to go over and uh, solve racism so he's going to <laughs> he's going to go over to Malik and explain to him why he's not racist and why Malik has no right to be offended by 
the very offensive thing that Shep said earlier. <clears throat> so uh, he goes over, says his piece, you know, and, and Malik in a very, I think, true to life and very real depiction, you know, in this very sort of fatigued way of Malik has probably had this some version of this conversation many times before. And so Malik kind of just wants him to get to the point so that he can get on with his day. And he's like, what do you want me to say, man? That I don't think you're a bigot. Fine. I don't think you're a bigot. Like, you know, I'll say the thing you want me to say so that you'll leave, but you haven't really done anything to change my mind here. And Shep just will not drop it. You know, he's like, I'm not racist. I have a, I have a Hispanic friend who also happens to be gay. Like, I my the worst one of all is he's like my sister dated a black guy like what the fuck does that have to do with anything like just and I didn't lynch him or something like yeah that. Like, what the fuck like and he just and then at a certain point he just devolves into just shouting I'm not a racist and it's like bro like who are you trying to convince them or you it's just it, it's it's he goes full all lives matter like he goes full all uh. lives matter this this is exactly and that's that's my caption that i put on the the instagram was that you know this is what for the all lives matter crowd out there this is what you sound like and if you think that shep sounds a little bit crazy here and if you think that shep sound ends up looking like an ass here because he does it might be time to reevaluate your stance on that particular phrase because you're not helping yourself and you're not helping anybody else with it so maybe just shut up and listen for a, a change instead of, you know, like I said, going over there and trying to explain to the person of color why they shouldn't be offended by the thing that you said that was clearly offensive. Maybe that's where you should leave it. And say it with me at home, kids. Black lives matter. Amen. And white people need to shut up and listen. Yes, we do. Uh, but for now, we're going to cut over to, uh, we're going to cover back to that uh, woman the heavyset woman uh, with abdominal pain and you know her, her pain's getting worse and worse as Ben is examining her and it's coming in waves about every minute or so and oh dear what does this sound like and oh no her last she prego her last period was a year and a half ago she's fully dilated and crowning oh no I'm so I, I will say like I was thrilled at this point to find out that she was actually going to deliver like once they said that she was crowning and everything i was so relieved because i thought for sure they were going to make it sound like she was going to have a baby and that it was going to be like this pan this panic situation and then she was going to fart and that we the whole scene was just going to be a a long this whole thing was just going to be one long setup for a fart joke and i was so glad to see that we were actually going to go through with her having a baby so at least they kind of redeemed it which we have had a version of that in the last season where we the did. woman is having really, really bad chest pain and then it ends up being just the awful belches. Yeah, but they didn't spend 10 minutes before that going, look at this lady. Boy, ain't she fat. True. But uh, so she does end up delivering Babby. And, well, at least later on she does. But for, would they cut away before she actually delivers the kid? Uh, Jeannie and Ben are helping her through the delivery and while they wait for Obi and Mark. and But... We don't actually see Benton get to deliver his first baby since med school. Right. I love that. He's like, I haven't delivered one since med school. And Jeannie's like, I saw a tape. Uh, Nothing but the finest standards of care here at uh, County General. Can I tell you, I have nightmares that I have a surprise baby. So this scene was awful. Yeah. But then Ruby, 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 Ruby. 
Carter goes into Mrs. Rubidoux's room and Ruby is in there and it's like, oh, it looks like she's doing better. Carter knows it's bullshit and his guilt is totally palpable. Um, he knows that it ain't doing shit. And he just goes, I think you should at least consider the possibility that your wife may need long-term care. And poor Ruby's just like, you don't know my Helen. She's a real trooper, right, sweetheart? And Carter, in a moment of guilt and just sadness, gives Ruby his beeper number and is like, you can call me anytime with any questions and I will do my best to help. Like, I'm here for you. And as Carter's walking away, Ru Ruby just says, you're the only person here who around here who gives a damn. Ruby. Any of this storyline starting to come back to you, Lauren? Nope. Still nothing. And then we find out uh, some, I can't remember who it is that's walking. I think it's Doug. Yeah. Walks up to the admit desk to tell Mark, like, oh, you know, you missed it, Benton. Your, your gastric pain uh, patient had twins. Everyone's healthy. And... Mark's like, wait, the heavy one? Or, you know, something like that. And Doug's like, yep, totally fine. And Mark's like, damn, I missed it. So they're just like, ha, 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 how funny is it that a fat woman had babies? And she didn't know she was pregnant. Ha, ha, ha. You're absolutely right. That is that is supposed to be the levity. Yeah. That is supposed to be our bright, shining moment in this, like, toxic shit pile that is this episode. Like, that is supposed to be our, like, hey, see, it's not all bad. We get to laugh fat at a fat lady, and at the end of the day, isn't that the most important thing? Ugh. Yeah. And uh, the hits are just uh, keeping on, they just keep on coming, Ugh. boys and girls, and everyone in between. Uh, Loretta's biopsy came back, and she has cancer. Mm. Cervical num- cancer, they, too. Yeah. Yeah, and the number on file that they have on file for her was disconnected, so Mark gets her address so she can go give her the news, because, you know, that's kind of important for her to know. And Doug says the eternal 2020 mood as well. 96 is going to be a hell of a year, huh? I, I should go back and clip each one of these like year call outs. Because remember we had last season, we had uh, Hicks saying like 95 is not going to be any different than 94. Like I really should I really should go back and like clip out all these year call outs because it's kind of funny how they're like there's so much optimism. Remember when we had optimism? Uh, not since 2019. I sure don't. Oof. It, you Christ. you still had optimism in 2019. Good for you. I had a little. Good for little you left. holding it together. We go from there over to Doc Magoo's. Jeannie and Al finally having their breakfast at like 9 p.m. Uh, he has gotten her pecan pie, which she doesn't like. What is it about this show and incompatible people? Tries to make small talk. Love is fake. Nobody belongs together. <laughs> Everything's awful. But, like, you would think after, you know, a certain amount of time, you would at least know whether or not they like a certain flavor of pie, maybe. I don't know. Not if not if you're Al Boulay, you don't. I guess not. He's a shithead. Uh, so he tries to make small talk. She's like, can we cut to the chase? Like, I've been on my feet for 18 hours. Like, I would like to go home. And he's like, I want to give it another try. Let's have kids. I'll be home. No more cheating. No more, you know, whatever. And Jeannie's like, I got to go, dog. Bye-bye. And just pieces out, basically. But there's kind of like, I I do like a little, I I do like uh, the performance there where there's this little bit of internal melancholy with her, too, where she knows that she's not entirely innocent in the situation either. So it's good, good work by Jeannie there. Uh, And then uh, more sadness. 
What else? What do you expect at this point? Uh, we get the little resolution to the Loretta storyline. Yo, dog, I heard you like to be sad, so I got you sadness to go with your sadness. Essentially. Mark is at her address and the that was on file for her, and the address is an empty lot in a shitty neighborhood. So, yeah. Awesome. Great. Is this the last time we see Loretta? Then? I think we... I think not. I think we do get another appearance of her i'm verifying that as we speak but i'm like that's that because like if so that's a pretty fucking downer note to end her story i mean this would be the episode to have a pretty fucking downer (laughs) storyline jesus christ uh no it is not the not the last appearance of loretta she will be with us through the end of season two awesome cool all right so silver tiny eensy weensy little silver lining there a little bit but that's where we leave it for this episode and then Benton goes in to check on the little boy who just had the hernia, who is going to have the hernia surgery tomorrow, Michael. Um, it's a very cute moment of him explaining the procedure to Michael and actually like taking time to be a human, which really shines when Benton chooses to do that. And it's really sweet because as he gets ready to go, Michael's just like, can you stay with me for a while? And he's like, he's real amped that Benton's going to be the one performing the procedure. Just like, Okay. Someone I quote-unquote know. Cool. And then, after this, Mark shows up at Susan's with a huge pizza, and she comes to the door, lights are all off, she's in her Bears jersey, and is just like, I was asleep on the couch. And Mark's like, I should have called. I'm sorry I didn't call. I can go. And she's like, what kind of pizza is it? He's like, good, good kind. And she's like, does it have sausage? And he's like, it has meat, lots of meat. And so, they hang out. And he's like, do you have any extra diapers for me to change? So it's just very sweet friendship moment between the two of them. I'm really glad they're getting back to their shtick from season one. I've missed their friendship a lot. And we uh, round out the episode here. We have uh, Carter waking up in his bed to the sound of his pager going off. He has, a, And we noted he's very fancy by the 90s standards. <laughs> he has a Bose sound system. Thank you very much. He sure not, does. Those things of, are f- fucking expensive. Not one of those fucking GE alarm clocks or whatever with the red, with the all the the red LEDs in them or whatever they were. <laughs> exactly. But, Ru- yeah, say, but Rudy uh, beeped him just like, and Carter, and uh, you, can, you can tell that Rudy's very apologetic for... Rudy? For, Ruby. <laughs> Sorry. That, uh, excuse me, Ruby seems concerns that it seems I give up. <laughs> I got it. So Ruby has beeped him and is voicing some concerns. And Carter's like, no, no, it's all right. I told you you could call. And Carter just sits up in bed and is on the phone with him as they pan out. And that's how the episode wraps. I still remember nothing from the Ruby storyline. Well, you're in for some treats coming up soon. Maybe maybe I've blocked this out. If it's as bad as you guys say it is, maybe I've just tuned it out. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. It's a tough one. I'll say that much. It's... And it's like we, Lizzie and I kind of mentioned on last episode, like it's it's very pivotal for Carter's development. So that will definitely be... He's definitely going to be very influential in that. But yeah, this is a real fucking bummer, gang. Yeah, this is uh, one we call. I, I like to call this one a uh, lovely dumpster fire of an episode that I, you know, didn't really want to. We really didn't want to talk about this one just after we watched it because we're like, "Fuck!" Isn't the show supposed to be escapism? Good yeah. God! Yeah. Isn't this podcast supposed to be fun? This it isn't was... going to be a 
fun episode to so, talk about. And spoiler alert, it wasn't. So we're really sorry, gang. We know that you're probably listening to us to escape how ridiculous the real world is right now, but we're all in this together and... You know, this is stuff that we do have to talk about, both from a media standpoint and from a real life standpoint. So we appreciate you sticking with us today. But Jesus Christ, I officially regret every nice thing I ever said about Shep. Yep. In the yeah. last ten episodes. Yeah, and I think so. Here's my kind of like TLDR on this whole episode. Like, if it was not for that scene in the cafeteria where he is clearly portrayed as being wrong and clearly portrayed as being the irrational one in that conversation um this episode would be probably my pick for the worst one so far like just because it is so irredeemably sad and so irredeemably uh messy that it is strictly on the strength of that one scene where they at least take a stand and i think that's the thing that bothers me the most about it is that you know er to this point and i think over as a show overall would always go the extra mile and make the counterpoint they would always they they wouldn't shy away from hot button issues but they would always go the extra mile and say no that's bullshit just because that's the narrative doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way it is and in this episode they don't really do that other than that one scene in the cafeteria save for that the rest of the episode it's just like we're not going to challenge this. We're just going to present it and it sucks. And it, I think makes the episode suffer as a result. So I think that's the thing, like, because we've had sad episodes before. It's not like the sadness is in and of itself a problem. We've had sad episodes before, but they were always buoyed by a strong story or a strong like message. And like this one, it just like, I don't know. I don't know what happened here. Daniel, I don't know what you talk what you're talking about. ER has never been political. <laughs> Wasn't until later on when they got so political after, you know, George W. Bush became president. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> anyway, I would have to say probably a C minus for this episode. Like it's fine, it gets the job done, but it really it was not it wasn't even a cathartic joy to watch. Like even the sad ones we can find something great in. But this one was just we had to do it it was yeah. too real yeah it was too fucking real for every, with everything going on now it was definitely a, a case of wrong place at the wrong time like it, it i mean it yeah. was again like seeing that clip from the cafeteria like that definitely was cathartic for me to see that that attitude portrayed as being incorrect or misguided um mm-hmm. but then it, at the same time it was exhausting to to realize that that point of view is portrayed as incorrect and misguided 24 years ago and yet we still have people who will insist to their dying breath in facebook comment sections of local news articles that all lives matter and that that's the only like no god damn it only all life, like you know it's only this thing and it's like dude like take a moment like step outside your comfort zone here and realize that your experience is not universal and that there are there's different experiences for everyone and everyone is experiencing life differently and it's not great for some people and that turn your empathy button on it'll only hurt a little yeah and you don't need to screech in the middle of a hospital cafeteria that you're not racist because if you have to do that chances are you probably are and one more time for the kids at home black Black lives lives matter. matter 
Uh, all right. Well, that's going to wrap up our dumpster fire of an episode today. Uh, thank you all very much for listening, uh, sticking with us. Uh, the show is brought to you in part by our patrons over at patreon.com slash setting the tone podcast. For only a dollar a month, you can get access to our show notes each week. Higher tier rewards once unlocked will include special season recap episodes, a monthly bonus show called The Lounge, where we'll talk about whatever's going on for us in our lives and pop culture in that moment, and also monthly movie commentaries where we watch and talk about a movie featuring an ER cast member. We would also appreciate it if you would follow us on our social media accounts. We are at SetTheToneER on Twitter. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast, And we are at Podcast on Instagram. Our theme music is, as always, provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at Dan.U, that is Y-O-U dot E-L. They can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell, where we do a different pop culture topic each episode and put it through a little mock trial. And Lauren, where can folks find you at? Um, today I'm actually going to skip my social media plug, because if you don't know it by now, you're not going to know it. And instead, I am going to give a book recommendation that is on my reading list for the next couple of weeks. Um, it is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, and this is by Robin D'Angelo. Cool. Well, I'll check that out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I am at RandomGamer, that's JM3R, and you can also find me on the popular courts youtube channel i'm doing a let's play series on mass effect andromeda new episodes every friday and thanks again everyone very much for listening and sticking with us this week please join us again next time and have a good one